What is real? What is truth and how do we know it? And more important questions are, what is false? What is being manipulated? And how do we know what to do with that? To help us understand how disinformation and media manipulation occurs and impacts every aspect of our lives, we now have Generation Justice Director Roberta Rael speaking with Dr. John Donovan, an expert in the field. This is Roberta Rael with Generation Justice, and I have the great pleasure this evening to speak with Dr. Joan Donovan, the Research Director of the Shorenstein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, where she also leads the Technology and Social Change Project. Dr. Donovan is a leader in research of online extremism, media manipulation, and disinformation campaigns. Her work can be found in publications such as the Data Science Landscape and the Unlike Us Reader. Her work has been featured in NPR, The Washington Post, New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Columbia Journalism Review, The Atlantic, ABC and NBC, and many more. Such a pleasure to have you with us this evening, Dr. Donovan. Welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Would you mind just sharing a little bit more about yourself? Well, I just feel like I'm in a I'm in a very weird crossroads in my life and career in the midst of a pandemic where the work that me and my team are doing at the Shorenstein Center is um, more visible and I think probably more important than ever. And at the same time, I'm stuck in my house every day, hanging with my spouse and my two cats and just trying to keep up just like everybody else with uh, what's going on in this world. And so it's a strange position to be in. I can relate to some of that, but I personally am so grateful for the work that you are able to share. And um, if the pandemic has helped your work get out further, let alone the political moment that we're in, I'm grateful for that. So I'd love to know more about the technology and social change project that you lead. Um, can you tell us more about that particular work that you're doing? Yeah, so the team has been growing over the last two years. Me and sort of one of my closest collaborators, Brian Friedberg, have been at this for a few years. And prior to this, we were at Data and Society. But when we came over to Harvard Kennedy School to do this research, we really wanted to look at really the social shaping of technology, how technology is informed by the ways people use it and how it incorporates those uses and those many innovations and disruptions and then becomes something different. And so when we think about technology as a factor in social change, we really see it as a part and parcel of the way in which our entire world is made up. And right now, we're at this really strange inflection point for the internet and for social media, which is why we're very focused on media manipulation and disinformation at this stage, because for many years, you know, not a lot of people took social media seriously. It was something for the kids to do. You know, they shared their memes. No, I'm joking. They shared their memes. And, uh, you know, but for the most part, the internet and social media became serious business when politicians and journalists and celebrities and other newsworthy and influential folks, including media elites, political elites, started to use it 
in their campaigns, in their everyday work life. And we've seen the internet move from a kind of fringe entertainment hobby into the core of capitalism and into the core of our media and even into the core of our politics. And that for us is a really big shift and a major focus of the last several years of our research. Will you speak to the intersection between social media platforms, capitalism, and power? Yeah, I think that for quite a while, when we think about power, we think about a few different ways of conducting influence. And the media is one way of conducting influence. And when I say media, I mean more mainstream outlets and and the the way in which we conceptualized media even back, you know, in the 90s or even pre-platforms in the early aughts didn't include social media in this way. And it didn't really include the internet or blogs. But what we did see, you know, as media gatekeepers started to become influenced by the internet, they started to adopt different models for, you know, they'll put a few articles online, and there had been some articles that were only for the newspaper, right, this kind of thing. And to some degree, cable news has relented in adapting to the internet. They just will broadcast their straight channel. Um, We're now starting to see cable news start to make product specifically for the internet. Uh, We've seen them move into podcast markets. But when we talk about the media as a gatekeeper for influence, it used to be a lot harder for politicians to get noticed. And unless you were indicted, (laughs) unless you had had a a sex scandal, uh, there was not a lot of column inches dedicated to regular old policy debate. There was not a lot of column inches devoted to campaigns, especially down ballot campaigns. And the paper would, you know, primarily focus on scandal. But what the internet has done in some ways is made politicians into media entrepreneurs in the sense that they see media as a vehicle. And because social media allows us such broad access to journalists now, politicians by and large will conduct online campaigns and some of them veer into media manipulation and other kinds of hoaxing and and whatnot just to get clicks just to get recognition. I'll give you an example of this. A couple years ago, Maxine Waters was running against a Republican challenger who was a young guy named Omar Navarro. And he was someone that had been hanging out with the alt-right crowd, was part of a group that would go around LA area and basically talk politics. They would show up at political events and say and do some outrageous things trying to get attention to Omar Navarro's campaign. And then one day on his Twitter account, he starts circulating this letter. It looks like a letter coming from Maxine Waters on congressional letterhead that basically says, Dear Bank, I need a million dollars. And if you give me a million dollars, I'm going to bring 38,000 refugees to Southern California, and they're all going to need mortgages. So send money. And that forgery was something that he was using to get attention. It got covered in the LA Times, it got debunked a bunch of times. But for 
many, 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 many months, it remained online and was being circulated by different troll accounts, automated accounts, as proof of Maxine Waters' corruption. And she tried and tried and tried to get it removed, messaged uh, every civil society organization you can think of, as well as Twitter, even the FBI. And at that time, platform companies, Twitter was saying, well, you know what? It could be true. Who knows? Not our job. Things have changed. Platform companies were not ready for media manipulation because they did not see that disingenuous folks would be able to turn their platform into their own advantage. And so what that, that story and, and hundreds of others point us to is that platform companies only now are starting to mature into their responsibility as distributors, where we used to have rules about distributing information over the airwaves and over cable and the internet as it was regulated and designed never really took up their public interest obligations. And as a result, we're seeing the consequences of that, which is that fake news travels further, faster, penetrates deeper into audiences than the truth. And we're now in this inverse universe uh, with social media where you would hope that good investigative journalism that reveals something about power is going to win the day. But what you get is grift and hoaxes. And, you know, this stuff with the Hunter Biden laptop is like lifetime movie level shenanigans. And so I think platform companies are now realizing that they're getting got and eventually it's going to affect their bottom line. And this stuff does show up in the stock market. Thank you for that. And what a great example. And I just also want to just point out that platform companies are only, I think, noticing that they need to change because there's been tremendous pushback from lots of media justice, media reform organizations and organizations committed to justice pushing on some of that. The fact that there's real danger with how they've been conducting business all of these years. No doubt. I mean, the Change the Terms Coalition for years has been pushing them to deal with the hate speech issue. You know, Facebook finally realized that unchecked anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial leads to networked conspiracy theories like QAnon basically taking over their brand. But I agree with you that if it hadn't been for media justice-oriented groups sounding the alarm over and over and over again and producing different public pressure campaigns, we just would not be here having this discussion at all. So in your research and in your study, how does 2020 stack up for disinformation? Is it just our perception that it's worse than ever, or is it really worse than ever? It is worse and different. So I hesitate to talk about things in terms of amounts because there's always been, you know, I think one of the main reasons why we love the internet is because it's full of gossip and rumor and all kinds of things that maybe we shouldn't be looking at. But it's different because it's really come to threaten the trust we have in institutions that really matter, institutions that take care of us, like public health. You know, I've been talking to more doctors and public health professionals than I ever have my entire life. And I have a background in medical sociology and I worked in mental health counseling for a couple of years. But doctors and public health professionals are horrified by the way in which people 
are getting medical advice and taking it. And the advice they're getting is really dangerous. So for instance, we knew early on that there was a conspiracy theory really gaining steam called the pandemic. And the idea was pretty simple that Democrats had colluded to take down Trump by any means necessary by bringing a pandemic to America. Now, why they would get Italy involved and all these other countries, you know, I don't know. But if you believe this conspiracy theory, you have to get rid of all kinds of sense. But that meme and that term started circulating online and people started tagging different bits and pieces of information. Oh, this is just part of the pandemic. Dr. Fauci is in on it, him and Gates and Soros, you know, all of the same old tropes that we've heard for years. And then something really strange happened. The meme became a movie. And so a documentarian had put together a 25-minute segment involving this known anti-vax activist and disgraced scientist and started circulating it online. But they didn't just put it up online and hope people saw it before it was taken down. They made a website and used a tactic we call distributed amplification. So on that website were instructions for how to download the movie and re-upload it to your personal account so that when platform companies did take it down for dangerous medical misinformation, you, as the viewer and activist, would re-upload it. And what it did was it really drew people in because they all had to put something on the line. You know, we talk about mobilization and protest. When people go to a protest and they get suppressed by police, it's not something that really deters them or some people in a way. Sometimes it really locks you in and says, this issue really matters. And and if they're going to shut me up, I'm going to say it louder. And that psychology is at play here where the makers knew that their documentary, quote unquote, was going to be taken down by platforms. And that became a media or political opportunity for them to spread this video even further and faster. And so when we talk about what's happening here, we also have to think about what are the institutions that people trust and why is that trust being eroded? And a big piece of it has to do with the way in which information is distributed, the lack of context in which people receive that information, and then what people are willing to do with that information. And when you get bad medical advice and you don't know it's bad medical advice, people change their behaviors really fast. And so we saw you know, different forms of that where people, you know, the whole debate about masks and if you should wear one or not, that's a dead issue amongst scientists. They all believe, you know, scientists that are doing science believe you should wear a mask, but politically it is a live wire. Thank you so much, Joan, for that great example and that great explanation of how disinformation can really disrupt democracy and society. Along those lines, I'd love to talk with you a little bit about how disinformation campaigns really impact BIPOC communities or how BIPOC communities are targeted for disinformation. It's a good question. Uh, we just released our website at mediamanipulation.org, and it's got a bunch of different case studies in it. But one of them in particular is a favorite of mine that is um, a campaign called Blacksit. The campaign was what's called digital blackface, which is to say that there were groups of different kinds of actors. Some of them, though, were 
people that were part of the American far right who realized that you can steal the legitimacy of a group of people if you are to just mimic the patterns of behavior that they have in their styles of posting and the kinds of things that they retweet and like. This has been iterated and this technique is very well seasoned where different operatives will impersonate people of color online. And so when it came down to it, several of these campaigns to pretend to be Black people online have ended because Black women in particular have sought it out and have really honed their skills as investigators and can root this out. I'll give you one example of an early version of this that some people might remember, which is Gay Girl in Damascus, which was a blog that one day the gay girl in Damascus during a very tense moment in Syria disappeared. And people were thinking, oh my God, she's been disappeared by the government. This is terrible. What are we going to do? And investigative journalists started to get on the case. They were like, this blogger has just disappeared. How could this be? And through looking into the story, they found out that the blog was actually being run by an American man living abroad, a white American man, who wanted to have a voice on particular issues, uh, issues that were important, but knew that their legitimacy as an American white male would be questioned, their motives would be questioned. So they invented this entire personality and this entire person so as to be able to participate in a really, you know, kind of sick drama in a way. And it wasted a bunch of resources of journalists who were trying to get down the rabbit hole. And, you know, I'd love to conclude on that point, which is to say that there is a true cost to misinformation. Journalists who are investigating manipulation and disinformation on these platforms could be doing other things. Budgets are tight. Resources are low. And the fact that they, as well as public health professionals, as well as law enforcement and other first responders, and we saw with the rumors about Antifa setting wildfires that firemen were wasting time and resources trying to get to the bottom of these rumors. And in civil society, who've now had to develop these really robust teams to monitor disinformation on their issues, all of these other institutes are paying the price for disinformation. And so I think it's really important that we think about, well, what kind of social media do we want? And how do we uninvent the social media system that we have now? Dr. Donovan, what are the most effective ways that we can fight disinformation? When it comes to thinking about what can we do, I think we have to understand that we are more powerful together than any one of us are alone. And we have to be cautious of the kinds of disinformation that we engage in. Sometimes it's better to ignore it. Sometimes their trolls are trying to get a rise out of you. But in instances where you see disinformation affecting people in your community, approach with compassion. People are tricked. People are deluded. This stuff is made to trick you. And so it's really important that you understand that people don't just wind up here because, you know, they just fell into something, but rather these messages are strategic, they're created, 
in a way so as to draw people in. Some of them use psychological tricks, you know, to kind of stick the point. And so it's really important that we approach each other with dignity and understand that some of this we're not going to be able to fix. And the other thing, of course, that we can do is participate in different campaigns like Disinformation Awareness Week to raise awareness and raise up the research and the voices of people that are fighting against media manipulation and disinformation. And through public education and through compassion, I do think that we can get a hold on some of this. But ultimately, the ball is still in the court of platform companies who need to take ownership and come up with a serious plan for not letting their products become weaponized against society. Dr. Joan Donovan, thank you so very much for this time with us at Generation Justice in our community in New Mexico. Thank you for your brilliant work for putting together a team of people who are as committed as you are to holding up truth and to helping us to know what to do in these critical moments that we're in right now. Thank you. And thank you to your listeners. I know it's not always easy to have to to hear these things, so appreciate the attention. Thank you, Roberta, for bringing Dr. Donovan to speak with us. And Dr. Donovan, we want to share some of your wisdom on what best practices to do when we see this information on any social media platform. One, avoid amplification. Social media algorithms feed on engagement, whether negative or positive. Even reacting with an angry emoji on a Facebook post boosts it and creates the possibility for more people to see the disinformation. Only comment on disinformation that is a high-level threat to debunk false information. 2. Report. If you encounter a piece of disinformation, flag it for removal from the social network or submit to the tip line for further evaluation. 3. Avoid cross-pollination. If you see a post on Facebook, avoid posting on Twitter about it, even to remark that it is incorrect. That only helps the disinfo spread and makes it more likely to go viral on other platforms. And 4. Inoculate. Help your audience to recognize and distrust this information when they see it by naming the motivation of bad actors, and then by sharing factual information from vetted sources. Dr. Donovan, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for informing us about the intersection between social media, capitalism, and power. It is absolutely crucial to stay vigilant during these times. Coming up next is Give Me Some Truth by John Lennon. <laughs>